Romans chapter 6. I had a good conversation with a friend in ministry that I greatly respect. Uh, Normally his advice is gold, uh, but in this case I felt led to go a little bit different direction. Several weeks ago we were talking about Romans 6 and Romans 7, and he said that he had found in his experience that it was best to... um, preach thematically through Romans 6 and 7, look for big themes and point them out in one or two sermons. And uh, when he said that, I thought, boy, that is something that's noble and something I think that's good to do, but I don't think I can do that uh, with Romans 6 and 7. And so I want to thank you for digging in passage by passage, verse by verse, through Romans 6 and 7. I think we've taken three or so sermons so far, and we've got more in Romans 7 to uncover. And I would ask you to pray for me as I think about how to preach this. I've taught through Romans six or seven times, but this is the first time I've ever preached through Romans the whole way. So thank you for taking the journey with me, and thank you for praying uh, for me specifically. Uh, To inform those prayers... My heart would be that the sermons would be two things. So if this is how you could pray for me. One, text-driven. That I would not focus on stories about myself. uh, Or about, you know, all the good things going on in my life. As if anyone cares. But that the focus would be on the text. That the sermon would follow the contours of the biblical text of scripture. Be sensitive to what the Bible says. If you prayed that my sermons would be text-centered, and then kind of a new theme for me in the last few weeks is that my sermons would be doxological, that they would direct all glory and praise to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in appropriate ways. If God is for God himself, Romans 1, then preaching should be for who? For who? For God and his glory. So pray that as we go through Romans, God the Father, Jesus Christ his Son, and the Holy Spirit would receive appropriate glory and praise through our focus. And along those lines, let's go to the Lord now and pray and ask him to do that. Father, I thank you so much for the gift of prayer. I thank you for the the song that we just sang. Father, we are weak. I am weak today. But you, you are strong. And so, Father, I pray that you would glorify yourself through our preaching this morning and our attention to your word. Jesus, make yourself clear to us in this text. Help us to rightfully see you. Perhaps demonstrate yourself clearly, Jesus, to someone who's never seen you before, to an unbeliever. May they turn to you today by considering Romans 6. And Spirit, Spirit, we pray, that you would give clarity and conviction to the scriptures today and to 
uh, my preaching of it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as we come to Romans 6 this morning, uh, we come to uh, the next objection that Paul raises against his own grace theology. Uh, He has been talking about the glories of grace and how it's so much better than sin. And then, in different sections, he will raise objections that he anticipates people making against his grace theology. Paul was a grace guy, right? We say we're a grace church. He was a grace guy. And so the first objection he raises is in verse 1, and is pointed out with the question, what then, or what shall we say then? And he answers that first objection in verses 2 through 14. As we come to verse 15, he comes to a second objection, and this is where we're going to look at today, Romans 6, 15. He says, what then, again, and then he answers the questions that he raises in verse 15, uh, in the end of verse 15, and the whole way down to chapter 7 and verse 6. Now, his answers uh, come in two sections, and we'll talk more about that. I think one answer is explained in Romans 6, 16 through 23, the text we'll look at today. The other one, Romans 7, 1 through 6. But in our passage that we're going to look at today, uh, we're going to consider a passage that will be very difficult for us as moderns to hear. Uh, That is so because what Paul will say in Romans 6, 15 through 23, cuts completely across cultural values. As I was studying, reading this text, sometimes my heart is just, what does it say? Okay, uh, that's what it says, so that's what I need to say, and then... Occasionally I stop and think about how are we going to hear that today. And uh, here in this passage, I mean, we come to a passage that is really cross-cultural. Let me just whet your appetite by showing you that briefly in the text. Uh, The first reason this is cross-cultural, it's going to be different than our values in our culture in America today, is because this passage is about slavery. Slavery. That's Paul's new metaphor. In the former section, the metaphor was baptism, and that was to describe our identification or our union with Jesus. But now, he uses the word slavery as his metaphor, and he has a lot to say about it. So as a preacher, I can't just say, well, you know, he said slavery once. It's eight times in this short little passage. It's like slavery, 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 slavery. Now, in our world, slavery is regarded as an abomination, unacceptable in any situation. To be a slave is to regard be regarded as less than human in our culture today. And this is held in our culture, perhaps understandably so, because of all of the ignorant and racist and abuses forms of slavery in our own country's history and in world history. Yet, Paul uses this word not only to describe the way sin acts as a tyrannical master over us, he also describes God 
as our master and uses the human analogy of slavery to help us understand the fact that as believers he owns us. That would be easy for us, I think, to reject this whole thing because of all of the wicked demonstrations of slavery that this world has seen. But that, I believe, would be to our detriment. In their world, of course, in the first century, slavery, I don't think, was a popular subject either. It's estimated that 30 to 40 percent of the Roman Empire were made up of slaves, perhaps another 20 percent of people who'd been freed from slavery. So I don't know if Paul's illustration at the very beginning would have even been popular. The experience of slavery was quite common in their day, yet Paul still insists on using it to describe our relationship with God by this metaphor. And so it's been my earnest prayer this week for two things when we hear this text. Number one, that we would accept it. And number two, that we would believe that God would never be guilty of the ignorant, racist, abusive things that other masters have done throughout time. Those wicked slave masters who've exploited and abused their servants are better pictured, I think, by the slave master's sin in this passage. That's what sin does, not God. And so we're going to talk about slavery this morning. But then to make things even more difficult for us in America to accept, Paul speaks about gaining freedom in this passage in a way that unbelievers in our culture won't appreciate. In our world today, we often hear about autonomy. Now, they might not use that word, but it's self-rule. And we insist in our advanced culture that no one has the right to judge us or to judge us for how we conduct ourselves and the choices that we make, or how we identify ourselves. That's the, if you put it in quotation marks, that's the Bible of our culture. Yet Paul completely rejects that kind of freedom to self-rule in this passage. He doesn't have a category for a person who's completely free or ruling himself or herself without being under another ruling power. You say, well, where is that in the biblical text? Well, look for the setting free language in the passage. Let me just read it to you. Verse 18. Look at the beginning of verse 18. He says, and having been set free from sin and have become slaves of righteousness. Look at verse 22, verse A. He repeats the same phrase. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The point I'm trying to make just simply is, in our culture, we like to talk about being set free, but not to become enslaved to someone else. But Paul has two masters in this passage, and neither one is self. As Doug Moose says in his commentary, there's no such thing as human autonomy, self-rule. And so this passage will fly in the face of that illusion of human autonomy. People want to be free from all restraints so they can just do whatever they want. What they need to recognize and know is that sort of freedom to the self, to the ego, is enslavement to sin. That is a demonstration of 
bondage to sin. And so our text today will find the face of cultural values and will make a case that we cannot sin because we are under grace, which means we're enslaved to God. The point of the sermon this morning will be to remind or inform you that we are set free from sin to function as God's slaves, to glorify him in the way that we live day by day. And I hope that comes across. So are you ready to see that in the text? Ready? Let's dig in. Paul begins this passage with the critic's questions in verse 15. Look at verse 15. What then are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? Here Paul has two questions he picks up, and these are similar to the criticism he gave in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul answers whether believers should sin so that they should get more grace. Remember that? When we looked at that? Should I sin so that that grace would abound? I mean, if when sin abounds, grace superabounds. If when we sin, we get grace, does that mean I should sin more? Right? I mean, I like grace. I want more of it. We're a grace church. So, sin. Paul says, no, may that never be the case. Now he raises another objection. Should we sin because we are under grace and not under law? Paul's critics, perhaps even Jewish critics, would certainly think that his grace theology was a recipe for disaster. I mean, to put grace alone in place of the Mosaic law, Paul, you are removing God's barrier that would keep us from sin. Paul, you are opening the floodgates to sin with this grace of the gospel of Jesus thing. That's their criticism. Now, his answer is simple again. Uh, the, the sermon goes pretty quickly in the first two points. Don't get too encouraged, though. It's going to take longer. Okay. The criticism. Verse 15a. Verse 15b, the simple answer. By no means. By no means. We should not sin because we're freed from the law and under grace. No way. May that never be, Paul says. And then, in my opinion, what he does from verse 16, the whole way down to chapter 7 and verse 6, is he explains that answer and why he would say, no way, no way. Just because you're under grace doesn't mean you can sin. Just because you've been freed from the law doesn't mean you can sin. Okay, and if you noticed, there were two parts to that criticism, being under law and under grace. Okay, and so for the last part of chapter 6, he's going to consider freedom or being under grace. And why being under grace means we can't sin. And then he will, in chapter 7, talk about the law. He'll finally get to the law again. And he'll say why freedom from the law doesn't mean you can do whatever you want. And so as we look at Paul's answers, he really gives two reasons why they can't do this. Uh, We're only going to look at one today, and it's the rest of chapter 6. 
So uh, the, the, the explanation here, the first reason that we should not sin is because being under grace means that we are slaves of God. That's what chapter 6, verses 16 through 23 will mean. Uh, we cannot sin because being under grace means we're slaves of God. And Paul will make this point by stating a principle in verse 16 and then applying it directly to the Romans and to us as well. So let's look at the principle. Look with me in your Bible at verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? Here I call verse 16 the principle. Paul states this principle in a familiar form. One, if you're reading Paul's letters, you should see over and over again. It says, don't you know this? That's his kind of dramatic way of saying they should know something. Okay, and then he asks this question. And he lays out a principle. He starts with an analogy of slavery. And the principle he wants to establish with this is the one whom you obey is the one to whom you are enslaved. That's the whole point of verse 16. The one whom we obey is the one to whom we're enslaved. Now, in the verse, he explains that there are two masters that we might obey or be enslaved to. The first one is sin. And in verse 16, the second master is what? Can you look down in your Bible and see it? I'm in verse 16. You're either going to be a slave to sin or a slave to... Well, in verse 16... Your answers I'm hearing are right, but in verse 16. Obedience. Yeah, I heard it. So, I heard a bunch of things, but obedience in verse 16. So the choices are sin on the one side or obedience. Now, as we keep reading, he will replace. You're either slaves of obedience or righteousness or God on the good side. Okay. So the choices are, you are going to submit to a slave master, and it's either going to be sin, personified, or it's going to be obedience, righteousness, God. And the end of both masters is also stated. Did you see that? Verse 16. Slavery to sin results in death. How's that sound? Good master, right? We're to find out later in verse 23. That's what sin pays. It keeps giving death, death, and more death. Or on the other side, slavery to God, slavery to obedience results in righteousness. That's the principle, verse 16. Uh, you um, are enslaved to the master that you obey. Uh, but then in verses 17 and 18, he gives the application. Okay, so if you're trying to take notes, I know it's been hard today. I don't have a handout for you, but hopefully you're writing this on your hand or something. Okay, on your husband's hand. You're right there. The application. So what Paul does is he applies the principle from verse 16, in my opinion, in verses 17 and 18. He applies the principle to the Romans. This is how the analogy of slavery 
applies to them. Look at verse 17. But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and have and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Here Paul starts by praising God. By literally, and if you look up the word for uh, thanks, it's the word for grace. Right? Uh, So by literally giving grace or thanksgiving back to God. Now, Paul will use this exact same phrase. matter of fact, when I read, but thanks be to God... It wasn't until yesterday that it hit me as I was just comparing this passage to other passages. That, that's found somewhere else very close to this. Do you know where that else is found? Romans 7, 25. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, he says, O wretched man that I am, who can deliver me from the body of this death? In chapter 7, Paul will Thank God for how he delivered Paul personally. This is different in that he's thanking God for what he did for the Romans. But thanks be to God for something he's done for you. And he emphasizes two things that God has done for them. If you, uh, if you underline the words have become in verse 17 and have become in verse 18, you'll find those two things. That God graciously did for them. First he thanks them for having become obedient from the heart. This is what God did for them. This expression I think is a way for Paul to emphasize the sincerity and the depth of what God did for the Roman believers. Although Paul's never been to the city of Rome, never interacted with many of these believers personally... He knows that God changed them and God did so from the inside out. He produced in them a sincere obedience that springs from their heart. Uh, But their genuineness is more fully defined in the text. If we're just looking in verse 17. uh, You have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Right? It's not... Not just that God rewards sincerity. Like if I'm just like, if I've got like heart, genuine obedience going on, then I'm good, right? No. It matters what you're obeying. Right? So there are world religions where there appears to be genuineness of people pursuing something earnestly, but the object's important. So what's the standard? He says... They follow the pattern, that's how I would translate this, the pattern of teaching to which they've committed themselves. The pattern of teaching. And I I think that's an important description that deserves a little bit of time. I know we are going to be partaking in communion today, and so I, I know I just have a few minutes. But I want to look at this phrase, the pattern or standard of teaching. We'll start with the word teaching. It was surprising to me as I looked up this word for teaching, a word that I know, but uh, it's, it's surprising how infrequently it was used in the New Testament. The word teaching. 
when this word is used, it is most often used in your New Testament Bible of Jesus. This is what Jesus did. He was, the, the teaching comes from Jesus. This is what he gave us. In other words, I, I think what Paul's getting at here is the teaching that he's referring to maybe the teaching from Jesus himself. In texts outside of the gospel, the word teaching is very infrequently used. When it is used, it's used of the apostles' teaching. And they're just expanding upon what Jesus gave us. Their teaching conforms with the earlier model of Jesus. And so Paul mentions the teaching here. I think he's referring to teaching of Jesus. Okay, Well, whether you agree with me or not, you can say in your ABS class afterwards. That's the word teaching. Okay, now why would Paul mention that in a passage where he is being accused of getting rid of the law of Moses? See, his critic would be concerned that if you go away from the Mosaic law, you say we're not under that, then people are just going to do whatever they want. And Paul says about the Romans, I thank God that you have been obedient from the heart to the teaching to which you've been committed. I think he's talking about Jesus' instructions to them. Now, he also uses the word pattern, and I think that's important too. Paul could have just said to the teaching, but he says the pattern of teaching. And as I studied that, I, I asked, what does that add? And I think it could be this. I think it's teaching that molds, shapes, or transforms those who've committed to it. That is, the teachings of Jesus molds or forms believers. And so if Paul's critics were concerned that God's standard had been displaced in the law of Moses, then they can be assured that believers have teaching from someone that they must follow that will conform and change them. Believers have a teaching that molds them. Now, Paul's also thankful that they become slaves of righteousness. And uh, he says that in verse 18. So, this is the application of the principle. Uh, This is how the analogy of slavery relates to the Roman believers. God has changed them so that they now render service to him and not to sin. And that leads to the demand. Now, unfortunately... Um, I was far too ambitious this week. I'm not going to get through all of verses 19 through 23. But let's begin into it. The principle and the application of that principle to the Romans leads to the demand. So there is one demand that Paul will rehearse in verses 19 through 23 that we've seen before that reveals our responsibility. It's specifically found in verse 19. So I want to read verse 19 with you. Paul says, I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members 
as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. In this verse, Paul begins by saying that he recognizes that some of the things that he's saying, the analogy that he's using, is going to be difficult for us. The analogy of slavery. I think even some of the ancient Romans would have likely struggled with the analogy because they'd been set free. You know, here, I earned my freedom. Like, I've I've been uh, gone through manumission. I'm now a free citizen. And you're telling me what? I'm a slave. I mean, think about it. Paul says, you have been set free to become slaves. It's a popular message, I'm sure. Yet Paul uses this metaphor to help us understand our responsibility in verse 19. And the responsibility for those who are slaves of God is given near the end of verse 19. Paul says, so now present your members as slaves. Now two weeks ago, we explored what Paul means when he issues this command, present your members. Do you remember that? We are to offer to God the parts of our body, all of our capacities, because he's our owner. That includes our feet, our hands, our eyes, our tongues, our ears, our brains, everything as God's weapons, not sin's weapons. Verse 19, he says, formerly we presented our bodies to impurity or uncleanness and to a vicious downward cycle of lawlessness. That's what we used to serve. We served sin. And it led to uncleanness and lawlessness leading to more lawlessness. Sounds like Romans 1. Worse and worse forms of lawlessness. But now, he says, we must offer our bodies to God, which leads us to become more and more holy. Verse 19, more and more sanctified, you might say. That's the familiar command we should know. Present the members of our bodies as slaves to God and slaves to righteousness. Now, we'll deal with verses 20 through 23 the next time we come together. But let me close in this way. This passage is a call that is cross-cultural. It cuts against the grain. To use a metaphor of slavery to describe being enslaved to sin is completely fine and appropriate for us in our advanced culture. But to think that God has set us free from one slave master so that we might serve another master, God, will be challenging for some of us to accept. But can I end this way? When you submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ and the lordship of his father, 
you will never find a sweeter, greater, kinder, more loving, more gracious, more wonderful master. If you have never submitted to God as Lord of your life and believed in the name of Jesus Christ, you can't imagine how wonderful it is to be freed from that wicked master's sin and to be under God. I've been reflecting on the words of the doxology that we often sing this week. It says, praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above, ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. If you are a believer today, God is your loving Master who gave you His only Son. He is not a tyrant master. He is a loving, giving master who gives grace to those who are in Christ Jesus. As we approach the table today, I think the question we need to ask ourselves is which master are we serving? This past week, have we been serving sin or God? Sin or obedience? And as we approach the table, we ask, which master will you commit to serve this week?